suggested donation. It's it's why his paintings are what they are. Like, it's, how dare you? It's so much of your character. It's like it's you not. can't allow that whole. Like, it's the OCD. In no, you it's that not. Makes, it like, was amazing, tiny little painting. I wanted to make sure that everything is in its place and putting down certain knobs. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure. What if I move this mic to this? Don't track. do that. <laughs> I mean, it's arbitrary. The space between them is I'll arbitrary. Just, I'll just start swinging in the air. Just, like, start punching the air. Please don't do that. Does this sound okay? So, you, yeah, we would just yeah. talk right into kind of the mic. Do you want me to bring this up closer? Like, yeah, I, I think so. I, well, uh, you can probably hold it right there. We could get it, some books. Yeah, literally. I mean, I have We have plenty of books here, here so that we can put it book. on. Maybe yeah. we should stack up some paintings. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, can you get uh, can you get that Bierstadt painting behind me? And the just bumpkins it? have taken over the uh, Pratt room. This <laughs> we have one person at least in this room is sophisticated. Oh. I don't. What do you have? Like a guide to basketball? I know exactly. <laughs> so what is good. That? Why is that here? Sports. Re- yeah. Very good. What is, what is that? This is a, not a sports club. They have plenty of clubs. New York Sports Club. Is that close enough? That's all right. Yeah, it looks good, yeah. The closer, the better, just in terms of the uh, sound quality. Does it sound pretty good? You sound great to me. Excellent. Are we rolling? We are rolling. Okay. All right, let's get it started. Welcome to Suggested Donation. I'm Edward Minoff. I'm Tony Serenai. And we are joined today by Peter Trippi, who is fresh off a plane from Vienna. Hello. Are you or tired? Should I say, Welcome hello. back. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think uh, when I when I talked to you the other day on the phone when you were uh, when you were in I assumed you were in a cafe somewhere in Oh yes, Vienna. yes I was smoking. Of course. Waving at the waiter. Of co- the <laughs> Another first, melange. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing I asked is the coffee. The coffee in Vienna yeah. is just fantastic. It is incredible. I'm still coming off of it. But you just... weren't there for the coffee. No. I was there for another reason. A grander reason. <laughs> What's that reason? <laughs> grander Funny than coffee? Oh. I know. That's a hard one. <laughs> I know, you're right. Uh, it was an exhibition, believe it or not, um, in the City of Music and Art. I was there for... Uh, a rather intriguing show about Lawrence Alma-Tadema. He, as you know, was the great uh, late 19th century neoclassical painter. And the Belvedere Museum in Vienna is showing uh, an exhibition that I curated with two colleagues. Um, It is on view until June 18 uh, in the lower Belvedere, which is the special exhibitions section of the complex. As you know, that's a palace property yeah. Yeah. Uh, with the big famous one at the top of the hill full of Gustav Klimt and Egon Schiele. Ugh. And then down below at the bottom is the rotating exhibition space. How does, how does uh, I mean, I don't know that I have any idea and I, I, I imagine some of the people listening have no, like how does a show like this come together from, you know, from the very inception of the idea? Like yeah. how, where does it come from? How does it come together? Well, as you can imagine, it's a long tale, so I won't bore you with every little <laughs> twist and turn. But, Go ahead. But, <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Essentially, um, there was a major retrospective of Alma Tadema in 1996-97 that uh, my colleague Liz Pretjohn, who teaches at the University of York in England, she put that together with the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam and the Walker Art Gallery in Liverpool. 
That was the first modern retrospective. Where was that? Where was that? In Amsterdam and Liverpool. Okay. Those two cities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it made sense because he was a Dutchman. uh, So it was opening in Amsterdam. Uh, And then it was presented in England where he succeeded. He became Sir Lawrence Salmatadema. Uh, so that all worked logically. That's 20 years ago already. And she and I have always been in touch about various projects and articles. And we curated an exhibition on J.W. Waterhouse about 10 years ago. So um, Alma Tadam has always been an interest of ours. Um, in 2013, the museum in the hometown of Alma Tadema came to me. Uh, it's called the Fries Museum. And it's called Fries, like French fries, like fries. Yeah. <laughs> um, because Friesland is the province where he grew up. Uh, it's up at the north of Holland, uh-huh. uh, up on the North Sea. And they said, you know, we're very proud of our hometown boy, and we would like to do a show about him all these years later. Would you be interested? Mm-hmm. And so I said, yes, but Liz has to be involved too. Let's do this. And so we began working in 2013, and it sort of was stops and starts, as these projects always are. Um, and finally, it all started coming together in 2015, mm-hmm. and the show opened last fall, September of mm-hmm. 2016. So in a nutshell... I have been an independent guest curator working from my home in New York. Liz has been an independent guest curator working from York in mm-hmm. England in her faculty office. And also we brought in a colleague from a university in Amsterdam to work with us on film history. Because as we'll discuss in a minute, um, we thought it was very important that this show be very different from the one 20 years ago. So we're looking not only at the paintings themselves by Amitadama, but also at the houses where he lived in London, which were incredible. Yeah. Just Historic. And are they well preserved? And- well, one of them is gone completely. Just oh. got demolished in I don't know nineteen thirty something. Oh, the other the one is still standing. No, 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 not during bombing. Just uh, redevelopment of the neighborhood. Uh, uh, the second the one is still standing. <laughs> don't don't even ask what the new building looks like. Um, the second one is still standing, and it's been renovated by a family, and they are taking very good care of it. And I've been inside the house, mm-hmm. even though it's their private home. Right. So that theme was important to us, that the houses are reflecting the way he thought about space, mm-hmm. and that idea goes into the art he made. And secondly, film, that we may think Alma Tadema died in 1912, and that was the end of that. He certainly went out of fashion, like all of those Victorians, but his influence lived on through filmmaking that the film directors of the early 20th century right into today, like Ridley Scott, who made Gladiator, Mm -hmm. Gladiator. love Tadema. And they used his images to tell the stories of the ancient world. Mm -hmm. So we have all grown up with Tadema, whether we know it or not. Were they collecting his work all along? Nobody really bought the pictures um, Mm -hmm. with the filmmakers. The real influence was the um, huge industry of reproductive engravings. Um, Tadema was very canny and managed his own legacy when it comes to having prints made after his paintings. Those were distributed in tens of thousands across the world. I would dare say that all of our great-grandparents probably owned a print Mm -hmm. without even knowing who the artist was. They just loved the prints because they were amazing. And those were incredibly influential on the filmmakers because they knew, here's a guy who understands how space works. And if there's one defining feature of filmmaking, it's about space. Mm -hmm. And they said, all we have to do is recreate these spaces in the prints on a film set. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, I remember when I was um, in college and I was starting to um, discover painters that I didn't know. And when he came up, when Alma Tadema came up, the first thing they talk about is his studio and how grand it was and exactly what you just said, this idea that all his paintings are actually just the interiors of of his studio. Yes. 
and how he lined the ceiling and the wall color (laughs) and all the props and the movie making aspect of his whole life was like creating sets. Absolutely. So I wrote my essay in the catalog about theater designs. He actually was a very well-known theater designer in his spare time. I don't know how this man ever found time to (laughs) sleep. Um, So in the 1890s in particular, he was revered in London for creating these spectacular breathtaking sets Mm -hmm. where people would go into the theater and the curtain would rise and they would all gasp because he had recreated ancient Rome uh, in front of them. And of course, all that material is gone. The costumes, the sets, all those um, ephemeral items were made of plaster. They were made of fabric. They're gone. Are there pictures of the sets? Believe it or not, not many. A few, but they're pretty crummy because they're black and white and it's very difficult to photograph theater or or to even make images of it. You know, like um, prints. The theater has a kind of need to be there aspect to yeah, it. So yeah. unfortunately, that's pretty much the case right up until 1945, 1955. That that period, we start to get better images of theater productions right. that we can actually be relied upon to, mm-hmm. as, as correct. Yeah. So how did the... Um how did you move on to this idea of starting this show now that you wanted to create this, 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 which is right. a, actually a traveling show. It's a traveling show. Yeah. That's right. So it opened in the Netherlands in the Fries Museum last fall. It was a huge success. The, the Dutch loved it. They came out in their, well, 158,000 people, wow. which is not bad for a town of 100,000. I mean, the, literally <laughs> the entire population saw the show and then And some. then had some kids. And That's right. <laughs> they how, were very busy. How many, how many paintings were in the... That was a big show. We had about 125 works of art. Now, I should be very clear. Where do they come from? Well, that includes Lawrence, his wife, Laura, who was okay. a very well-known painter, and their daughter, Anna. Uh, she was a fine painter as well, mainly of interiors of their houses. Um, so the number that I'm giving you is actually reflecting all three, not just Lawrence. Okay. The preponderance was definitely Lawrence, to mm-hmm. be sure. Yeah. Uh, and most of them were oils, uh, not uh, watercolors or prints or anything like that. Um, we had a few, very few works of art by other artists who mattered in his story, like Frederick Layton, for example, mm-hmm, who was the president of the Royal Academy yeah. and a friend of his. Yeah. Um, these works were borrowed from around the world. Uh, I spent a lot of my last two years writing letters from the museum in Holland to owners, uh, whether they're um, private owners that we reach through the auction houses, like Christie's and Sotheby's, Mm -hmm. or directly to museums, like the Philadelphia Museum or the Royal Academy, saying, hey, you've got this, this, and this. We would like these for these dates. Right. And that's how it works. You just basically hope that they're going to say yes. And they're like, yeah, cool. (laughs) What's what's the percentage of yes to no when it comes to borrowing something that might be worth a couple of million dollars. Yeah, it's pretty terrible, actually. Really? We got a lot of no's, but we still ended up with so many pictures, and that's great. You Do know, they we're ever feeling say happy. why? No? Sure. I mean, you know, for example, the Getty Museum was very kind and said, look, spring, which was one of the great masterpieces, yeah. is too fragile to travel, that it would actually come home damaged, right. and that is not worth doing. We yeah. would not want to see that happen. So it stayed in Los Angeles where it belongs. What? Is there something yeah, unique about that painting? You know, it's funny. Um, this is an artist who doesn't seem to have a lot of structural problems, like J.W. Waterhouse, uh, yeah. who painted in a very peculiar way that means they're unstable. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really know exactly what was wrong with the Getty picture, but we heard that problem expressed in other cases. So we respect that because we never want to put the object at risk. Uh, The insurers won't touch it anyway because they would be worried that they would lose money on it. Um, 
in this case, we were able to find replacements, so to speak. Like, the spring is irreplaceable because it's so marvelous and huge. But on the other hand, we did find a what I would call a festival picture that is absolutely lovely. Mm-hmm. And that was in London. It was very easy to get that sure. involved. So the truth is that we were looking across North America and Western Europe. We didn't really go much further beyond. There aren't many Almatatamas. Like, there's one in South Africa, and there are several in Australia. But we thought, okay, we're not going to get carried away here because the shipping is so expensive. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. The insurance <laughs> on that would be ridiculous. The insurance is really, really high. Yeah. So when when the show opened and... You're, you're saying 100,000 people came to see this. Is it is he revered right now in his home country? I mean, I know he's always considered British, but he's actually... Well, that's that's the interesting point, that, that the Dutch... Um, first of all, it's been 20 years since the last major exhibition about him, which happened to be in Amsterdam. So there had been a whole generation or two that had grown up not really knowing much knowing. about him. And I think they were thrilled to see how talented he was. A lot of them were surprised that he was Dutch at all. Or that he was Frisian in particular. The name Alma Tadema is a very peculiar one. That's his yeah. um, actual name. Well, Lawrence was something he... It, did he add that on it, It's kind of strange, actually, that his, his born name was Lawrence, which is, it's essentially Lawrence to us, right. but it's spelled L-O-U-R-E-N-S. His middle name was Alma, with no hyphen involved. And then his last name was Tadema. Now, Tadema is like Smith in Friesland. I mean, it's like <laughs> really common, no big deal, right? At a certain point... In his career, he hooked up Alma to Tatama with a hyphen because it sounded very smart, very clever, very fashionable. And, of course, the British do that a lot with their double-barreled names. Yeah. And it also moved him to the front of the catalogs. That uh, literally, yeah. he became A, not a. T. <laughs> very clever. So he was a businessman through Can and through. Sounds like it. Totally. So he got that. He understood that that would be a good strategic move. The name to many people, first of all, sounds feminine because it ends in A's, but that's normal in Friesland. Almost every family has got an A at the end of their surname because mm-hmm. that's just the way it's done. M-A is kind of like Mac in Scotland and Ireland. It's basically son of, okay. right? So it doesn't really throw you if you understand that about Ireland and Scotland, that yeah. that's just normal. Um, but it's also, let's face it, it sounds Italian. A lot of people think oh, the name Italian. is Italian because it just looks Italian. And, and it's ironic because he painted scenes of ancient Italy, yeah. but he has no connection to Italy through his blood, only through his passion. Travel and, he was yeah. always in Italy. He loved it. Always. So, so people were coming out here seeing kind of their, their original countrymen, and what, yeah. what was the overall reaction? The reviews were rapturous. They really were very positive, and that's one reason why the attendance was so high from across Holland. Um, they thought, well, this guy really knows how to tell a story convincingly, oh, yeah. quickly, in paint, and that is something that we admire, because after all, the Dutch... I won't say they invented it, but they really got it right in the 17th century, that he was yeah. inheriting that whole legacy of painting well, and they appreciated that. But they were also intrigued by the fact that he anticipated modernity, that, that essentially filmmaking mm-hmm. came along partly due to him. I don't mean it entirely, but, but the notion that those sword and sandal films that we all grew up with come very much out of his <laughs> image, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that was made very clear in the exhibition. To be very specific, in that presentation in Holland, we uh, opened up the show with a montage of paintings and films side by side in slides so that you could see the direct connection between the painting and the film. Like, literally, the same motif. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, someone drawing a curtain back. That, that's something that he yeah, painted all the time. Sure. The Claudius one, right? Right, exactly. Then we finished the show with the major masterworks of his maturity, 
And above the paintings, like above the cornice, not right in your line of sight, but above high on the wall, were snippets of relevant vintage films or films like Gladiator or The Ten Commandments that were the exact same motif. And they were slightly in motion, like they were short snippets that were looping. So you could stand back from the painting once you had admired it and immediately see the connection between that painting and the film above. Mm -hmm. And that was so elegant because it didn't in any way distract from the works of art, but it also made the point very clearly that this was the next step, mm-hmm. that filmmaking, believe me, if he had lived long enough after 1912, he would have been a filmmaker. He would have been a filmmaker. Sure. Totally. I mean, you, you hear stories about all some of the greatest filmmakers and how they were so influenced from, you know, old master stuff. I remember watching Apocalypse Now and that ends, you know, the scene when when uh, is in the yeah when Marlon Brando I mean he was uh, uh, they were just like it's Rembrandt we're just trying to do Rembrandt and Caravaggio Caravaggio and was a, a big influence on yeah him. and then obviously for Gladiator it was it was Almatadema and, um, and Jerome totally where they actually said I think Ridley Scott said I wasn't going to do the movie until I saw the paintings <laughs> exactly. and he was like I have to do it now because that's it, it and it completely influenced him to do that and then you know the George Lucas's and the yes. Steven Spielberg's and all of them they huge collectors of yes illustration and sort of 19th well century. Lucas has three Almatadema paintings oh he does yeah we did not request them because we know that he's busy with the Museum of Narrative Art which in he's setting LA. up in Los Angeles so yeah. we're sort of keeping you know our distance and mm-hmm. we're looking forward to seeing that show obviously. does he have major that, ones or small Small works. They're, they're nice, but they're not like absolutely knockout. You know, mm-hmm. but they're they're important to us. Obviously, we're interested in every single one of those works. I should point out before I forget that at the opening celebration in the Netherlands, I got on stage with Arthur Max, who designed all the production sets for Gladiator. And oh we, wow! We had a conversation. Um, I have photographs of us sitting there gabbing, two guys from New York, um, basically <laughs> hey. talking about how he and his colleagues wanted what he called a black tatama. He wanted everything to come down in the color range so that there was an ominous feeling that it was accurate but it was also moody and melancholy because mm-hmm. the film is full of gloom of yeah you know so he totally studied Tatama closely in terms of the original paintings and mm-hmm. also photographs and his colleague the costume designer Janty Yates won an Oscar for essentially recreating the costumes of Tatama was were they thinking accurate to history or accurate to Alma Tadema? To the mood, and that's a very interesting point. They knew that Tadema was at heart a theatrical kind of guy. Mm-hmm. They had brought in a lady scholar, a classicist, to mm-hmm. consult with them. Right. She quit. She because said, I can't do this. This is not accurate. Right. And because, I mean, said, these are painted. We're not making an archaeological film. <laughs> right. We're making a work of art. Right. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> and I'm paraphrasing, yeah. of course. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it was much more cordial than but that. But it's interesting because there's a big it. divide there. I mean, he, was, he wasn't, I, mean, I don't even know how much he would have known about exactly what you know, what it would have looked like. He was definitely going to Pompeii, right? And Absolutely. he was going to yes. see as much as he could. Yes. But, I, you know, I don't know how much... He, he was a scholar at heart. He basically was taking photographs and notes and drawings of mm-hmm. everything he saw at the ruins, like Pompeii. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was collecting... Uh, photographs and books and and using them as a resource like Mm -hmm. literally we we talk about the idea of a laboratory that he he was setting up a studio house that was a working laboratory not just of spaces that he could paint uh, when he walked around the corner to get a cup of tea but also the idea of consulting documents and Mm -hmm. pictures but he also would blow archaeological artifacts up or down in scale 
to suit his needs. Oh, uh, for yeah, example, right. you know, if you're a scholar and you look at some of his paintings, you'll say, wait a minute, wait a minute. That piece of furniture or that sculpture, it's not that huge. What the hell is that? Right. Well, he didn't care. He right. was going to use that motif to his own devices. Right. And he therefore would stomp or annoy the scholars because he was basically serving the public. He was more interested in his own vision and selling pictures. Well, right. if you're going out landscape painting and there's something unsightly in front of you, but the rest of it is great, you you don't paint it. Bingo. You just paint it but out. That's <laughs> exactly right. A, a lot of uh, other painters, I'm thinking particularly the kind of French academic tradition, when they did history paintings, a lot of them were allegories for things that were kind of current in their lives. And I'm curious about how much that factored into uh, Tadema's work, because I, I don't necessarily get the sense that it, I feel like he looks back, I don't know that he's trying to relate it to his own time. He's got a different vision. Totally right. He is not terribly interested in commenting on modern times. Mm -hmm. um, the only thing that I would suggest differently in that regard is that you could, and, and scholars have suggested, that he's this is a really awful phrase, but Victorians and togas, that, that basically, you know, I mean, that was the title of the show at the Toga, Met in 1973. <laughs> it, it's, it's not really correct, but, but the fact is that, you know, are those figures actually modern Victorian people living this comfortable late Roman imperial life? Right. Let's be very honest. The British Empire was the largest in the history of the world, <laughs> and it did resemble ancient Rome. Yeah. And they did say it did. I mean, they talked right. about it very openly, that they were the more beneficent Romans, if you will, that they were bringing railroads to India and so on. Yeah. So they could feel smug about that. On the other hand, you're right about those French artists, that they were often making critical or slightly problematic observations about their own times. Mm -hmm. He was not interested in that. He did not want to say anything negative particularly, except, one could argue, he presents often an ironic view of imperial power, that he, he mm -hmm. shows powerful people who are morally dubious, like you were talking about the, uh, the Claudius picture, yeah. where the curtain is being drawn back. Right. That is not complimentary to Claudius. <laughs> he is basically quaking in his boots, right? right? Because he thinks he's the next to be murdered. Yeah. And they're actually making fun of him right. by bowing in this very obvious way. So it's this, the, the sense of um, there's a, a kind of jab that, that Tatama puts in to these fancy, pompous people mm -hmm. who are thinking that they own the world. Right. So that's I a mean, little critical. I mean, that was critical, a Viber thing, right? Like Viber all of his paintings on, are... On the, on the church. Oh, Viber was absolutely anti-clerical, and he went all out, and they yeah, he let didn't him get away it. with it. Um, <laughs> I mean, his was, was about as obvious... <laughs> was he an atheist? That's a good question. I don't know. I mean, it would be pretty easy to become one in the face of the Catholic Church's, you know, <laughs> craziness at that time course, that they, they were, were so powerful. Insane. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about his working method? Because I've always been fascinated yeah. by not only his ability to paint, you know, technically and how complicated his stuff was, but the number of paintings he did. I was like, how are you able to do that many figures and that much detail and do that many paintings? Okay. Do you know anything about that? Well, I mean, it, it's something in the range of 400 to 500 finished works of art. Jeez. Now, that's a lot. On the other hand, let's remember that he was working nonstop from the 1850s right through to 1912. Um, I also want to point out that a lot of the works are smaller in scale, that he was not making huge waterhouse size pictures. They tend to be what we call cabinet pictures. But sometimes those are 
longer it, uh, yeah, than the big I, ones. I agree. Trust me. I, oh, I, I, I know you know. Take it from... <laughs> yes, you have suffered. Um, you know, the intricacy, of course, the yeah. tiny little passages of detail are incredibly time-consuming. Apparently, he was a very neat painter, that there was never a mess on the floor. Uh, we know for a fact that he didn't make any <laughs> this drawings. This all appeals to Tony. <laughs> There's like hearts in my eye, like above my head. Can you see them? Anyway. Oh, boy. And so he was absolutely punctilious. He would just sit down having maybe done an oil sketch, maybe, some drawings, maybe, and then get right to it. And he would just go and go and go. What I haven't done, I'll be honest with you, is any kind of pigment sampling to see how deep the layering is. Mm. Like, I did that with Waterhouse. We didn't have time on this project to go in and Mm -hmm. grab microscopic size samples and see how deep they are. Like, with Waterhouse, there were 25 layers in some cases because he was so obsessive. He was absolutely wow. so slow. He was always missing the deadline because he was obsessing on the surface. That's like encouraging to know that I should yeah. just keep going over. So. <laughs> just do it's it. It's okay. Don't well, worry except about that it. you said that those paintings are not sound. They, they're crackled. Absolutely. Well, I'm not 25 <laughs> deep. I might go like one or two more. But today, yeah. my, I mean, his yeah. surfaces feel very worked out. Like they don't look. Some of the French academic paintings, you can kind of see a little bit. And even Leighton, I think, yeah. often. Some, you feel like you see the canvas texture through, yep, and sure. Tadema, I don't, I don't, don't get that sense. Like he, it seems like they're layered a bit. I think they are because, in that regard, um, in the catalog, uh, uh, Daniel Robbins, who's the senior curator at the Leighton House Museum, writes very eloquently about the fact, as he's contrasting Leighton and Tadema, that Leighton did exhaustive drawings of absolutely everything in the picture before he went to work. Once he got started he would never make a change. He mm-hmm. said, it's too late. That's it. I have to go. I have to carry on as mm-hmm. I was planning. Unlike Leighton, Tatima clearly was moving things around. Oh, yeah. Um, we haven't done any examination. No, I can't give you an example. Yeah. But I know that surely you're right, that basically he's fidgeting with things. And by the way, he would wipe out after a whole day's work really? if he wasn't happy. Oh, we, wow. we have that on account from a friend. That, that he absolutely would say, you know what? Not good enough. Let's Are there go. unfinished paintings by him? I feel like I remember I've seeing, seen and couple. it's like yeah. drawing and paint on the canvas. Yes. Yeah, we have one very large one from the Van Gogh Museum in the show, and it's very helpful from yeah. the 1870s just to see how he did it. I think I saw one that was unfinished, and it was surprisingly loose and just like the paint slapped around. Yeah. And then it, uh, I'm assuming he just keeps going until he just tightens it up because they're, they're pretty tight. I saw a painting of his. I've not, I have not seen a lot of his in, in person. Mm-hmm. I've seen a couple. I, w- I saw one recently in, in Fort Worth. Oh, yeah. Yes. Um, yes. They have a beautiful one. Yes. Um, and I was blown away by... You know, when you see things on, 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 you know, photos or books or even on the computer now, you can't tell the texture. You, no. f- you figure it's just painted like that. Like, like it's, with him, it's modeled like that. So I go there and there was a dress, um, a toga. <laughs> yeah, that was a toga. <laughs> and it was, it really was just built up under layers of like the ground, let's yeah. say, that was built up to be very um, impasto and, and shaped, almost like it was sculpted. Yeah. And then he glazed over it, and then you you step back one or two feet, and I'm like, that just looks as soft as silk. And I was, and you know, I kind of know how to paint, and I was like, (laughs) I I would not have done that and get that illusion. It just blew me away. He's, I mean, I, I, 
He's so great. <laughs> I'm glad to hear you say that because I think you bring a perspective that I can't as a scholar. Yeah. That you know, I, I can appreciate these things as you say them, but I wouldn't know how that is because I don't make paintings. So for me, the great joy in Vienna last week was to go around with these glasses and look closely at the surfaces. The, the exhibition in Holland was so popular, I could not get near the paintings. Wow, that's it was awesome. For the packed. duration the of The whole it? run that's was That's so packed. encouraging. The director yeah. of the Rijksmuseum had to wait in line. And he tweeted about it and said, this is awesome that a museum in the provinces is so busy, I have to wait in line. And that's very Dutch. They don't cut line in Holland. In Austria, yes, they would. The director would go to the front of the line and say, do you know who I am? Excuse <laughs> me. Love, the, Holland, Dutch. Love the Dutch. They're great. They're like, hey, nope, I'll wait. It's cool. He was watching. He was actually learning from the audience, you know, who they were. Um, but it seems to me that now, because the show is a little quieter in Vienna, which is fun, um, to go and admire those details with glasses or a magnifying glass, <laughs> it is such a joy. Yeah. I would just be there for hours taking notes because I yeah. really think he for me he's one of those that I'm like really interested in figuring it out because yeah. of what we said just how did he get that much work done yes I'm very interested to know yeah that to, finish and that amount to your point then on, on that subject he did work a lot when he went away from his easel he was basically throwing parties because he was a great host he and his family were really welcoming and everybody loved coming for concerts and drinks and so on um he did travel a lot to see the exhibitions where he was being presented around mm -hmm. Europe. So, so he was that was all about his work too, like his Absolutely. I mean yeah. he was really a businessman, yeah. let's face it. He was absolutely interested in making money and not being shy and he about was it. Rich. He was super rich by the time he died. It didn't hurt that he married a wealthy woman. Uh, the, the second wife he was married um, well. <laughs> well he did. Uh, actually the first wife was not on rich either. But stock. um he, he had come from lower middle class, so I think he was mm -hmm. always very mindful. He of, came from lower middle class? His father was a notary and his mother was a homemaker and in fact things were a bit tight in their his youth because his father died when he was young. And, and wasn't so, he supposed to be like a, he was training to be something totally a different. or something. A lawyer. That Didn't was they the think hope. he was going to die and they're like, yeah, go ahead, go paint Do so it. you can, because yeah. you're going to die <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Just really go sad. ahead, die. No problem. <laughs> yep. And, and he, he didn't. proved himself. I mean, it, we have in the exhibition a self-portrait he made at 16. You would not believe a 16-year-old made it. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's fantastic. Like a, yeah, it's, I've it's good. Yeah. It's really good. Did so, you get any of the notes that you were mentioning before that, like, when he would go to Pompeii, he would take notes? And did, yeah. did you are those well-preserved? And did you get any of those for the exhibition? Uh, absolutely. Um, we have... Um, a uh, sketch that he made uh, from that first visit to Pompeii in 1863. He was on his honeymoon with his mm -hmm. first wife, and poor woman had to sit over there knitting while he was busy taking notes and measurements. I mean, it must have been a huge bore for her, but he was in heaven because he had never been to gotta Italy do before. Do what you got to do. I'm yeah, sorry. Well, you know, taking measurements to try the and understand the spaces. Oh, he wanted to understand the physicality. That's. I mean, I feel yeah, like yeah. that's a big window into his process. Probably. Totally. He was an engineer at heart. I'd say that he basically was fascinated by the construction of these buildings as an architect would be, but he takes it further. And I think that's very Dutch. You know, you have to remember that Friesland is on the North Sea and it's all about these dikes. Yeah. I mean, if they don't keep those dikes going, they're, extraordinary they're done. Dikes, yeah. That's it. It's all underwater. Right. So there is this aspect of practicality among Dutch people, especially those by the sea that he inherited. And so going with a measuring tool to a site like that does not surprise me in the least about mm -hmm. him. Other artists might not bother. They would just make pretty sketches and go. Um, so there's that. And the notion of trying to understand 
how the spaces worked when they were fully mounted. I mean, ruins are hard, of course, because you're missing the roof, for example. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know it was wooden, but you don't know what shape it was because yeah. it's all gone. So he was really digging deep into the research, uh, the, the, the writing of the time, trying to understand that. And so uh, that sketch that I mentioned is in the show alongside a finished painting. So you understand how he gets from point A to point wow. B. Wow, and how closely does it relate to the finished painting? Pretty close, actually. I'd say that you know he, he essentially comes at it from the other side. I'm talking about uh, the Odeon Theater in Pompeii, um, which um, he's looking in life, he's looking from one side, and then he decides to take it from the other side uh, in the painting. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very convincing because you see people in their seats inside the theater waiting for the performance to start. So he's adding that aspect of theatricality right. that he's so good at. Yeah. And it's an early picture. It's 1860s, you know. Wow. I mean, he was already hitting it well in the 1850s, but definitely by this time, he was really on. Yeah. And people were just snatching up his paintings. Absolutely. Was there something uh, in the art buying ethos at that time that really appealed to the collecting, the people who wanted to collect that type of work? Totally. I, th- I think that he hit it perfectly in terms of the fascination for archaeology, that mm. people of that period were reading about new finds every week in the newspaper on the front page mm-hmm. that it was big news and they wanted to see as much as they could obviously photography was primitive at that time maybe they would get lucky and get an illustrated um, periodical like the london uh what is it called london weekly news i can't remember illustrated london news uh, which had very very fine engravings um, but in this case what he's doing is serving the viewer whether they're a rich person buying the painting or a middle class person buying the print by bringing that to life, that he's integrating all of that archaeological knowledge into a fantasy of what it really was like. But you know what? The fantasy is not that far from what it actually might have yeah. been like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He knew that. He, he wasn't yeah. going too far right. and creating chocolate box. He was doing something quite believable. And that got people excited. So they wanted to own this image. And they wanted to reproduce them as much as they possibly could. It's, it's very human. So the show opened there, and then what was the next stop on the show? Right. So it, it basically is shrinking as it tours. Uh, it was okay. at its largest extent in Holland. In Holland. Then it moved to Vienna, and basically it was trucked down uh, in uh, February mm-hmm. uh, after it closed. And it was reopened in a very different set of rooms. Uh, as you would expect, each building is distinctive. Um, and the show will shrink yet again as it moves from Vienna to London. Mm-hmm. It's going to the Leighton House Museum, which is a magnificent house. Oh, yeah, it's great. House. Beautiful. Um, it is the only proper surviving studio house of its period yeah. in London, and it's incredible. And it reminds us of what Tatum's house would have been like. Yeah. Uh, they had different personalities, of course, but they're not too far apart. There's yeah. a real glorious color and pattern going on But everywhere. was Leighton's studio as extraordinary? I mean, Alma Tadeva in history is probably apparently right. has the best studio Correct. in all of history. <laughs> that That's amazing, I think, when you contemplate how wonderful Leighton House is. That people yeah. go in and say, oh, oh, wow, the Arab Hall so beautiful with the tiles. And, yeah. and look, my friends, no. You should have seen Matadema's <laughs> Believe me, it was that much better. And wild. it was bigger. I mean, it had 44 rooms. It was big. Oh. Now, remember, he was a family man. He had two 
daughters who never married, by the way. They, kids. They, <laughs> yeah. they had a lot of rooms. Yeah. Uh, they could just wander through. Um, one daughter was an <laughs> artist, the other Seuss. was a writer. I need a 44. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they had servants, but they answered their own door. That's very Dutch, that they would just come to the door and say, hi, come on in. They, they didn't have staff to really mm-hmm. get in the way, as Leighton would have. He had a butler and, you know, door yeah. people. Fancy <laughs> He was Lord Leighton, after all. But um, it seems to me that that is going to be an incredible presentation. It opens July 7, and it runs through October 29. Incredible because we're going to deinstall the entire house and refill it with Alma Tadema's art. The only room that will survive, if you will, untouched will be the studio of oh, Layton, yeah. where Which all love, the wonderful all things on yeah. the walls will remain. But then we're putting up a structure in the middle, which will be temporary and not intrusive. It won't hurt the building. And that will allow more things more to go things. in there. So kind so, of a temporary wall just right, to hang like a paintings. installation of sorts. It. Um, it's hard to explain, but it's, it's very um, beautiful and simple. And we're going to use every single room in the house. The Arab Hall will remain untouched, of course, because it's just tiles. It right. wouldn't be possible hang to hang that. anything yeah. there. Um, but what we're going to do is basically guide you through, self-guided, um, on the chronology of Amitadama's life. And then we will shine very strong light on the connections with Leighton because they made yeah. paintings for each other yeah. as gifts. So yeah. we're going to have those in a special place. That'd be a pretty cool friend to have. Yeah. I want a friend like that. You have <laughs> You one. have one. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome, Tony. I, okay. <laughs> so what was, the, um, what was the reaction in Vienna? I mean, it's, it's currently up right now. It's there now. Right. He doesn't have a connection to Vienna, really, does he? Well, that's interesting. You should ask. Um, we were uh, marketing the exhibition across Europe. We were proposing it to many different venues. Uh, name a museum in Europe. We wrote them a letter saying, would you like to have this show? Because well, Belgium. We knew Belgium would be a logical yeah, place. True. Absolutely. Um, to, to be honest with you, we were fascinated by Vienna because we know for a fact that Gustav Klimt was hugely influenced by Tadema oh, in his youth. Sense. The 1880s pictures of Klimt look like Tadema. Yeah. They don't look like the Klimt we know, Yeah. right? Yeah. So he changed in the early 1890s into a different artist, and he was wonderful at both periods. Mm-hmm. So we recognized that, and we knew that the Belvedere is basically the command center for studies of Klimt because they have the richest collection in Europe. And so they got it. They totally understood, and they said, yes, we'll take the show. And now, after our show closes, they're mounting a show called Klimt and Antiquity, which will investigate that period very deeply. So essentially, visitors can come back in the summer to see more of this topic. What we did on our trip this past week with the Leighton House Museum patrons was go around Vienna looking at early Klimt's. Like, for example, in the stairwell of the Kunsthistorisch Museum, there are marvelous murals that were made by Klimt and his brother, and they are Almatadema. And so we have a whole chapter in the book written by a curator from the Belvedere about this connection. Mm -hmm. So it all makes perfect sense when you stop and think about it. And then from that, that it's going to head off, uh, head off to, to, London. to London. That's the final venue. Now, one thing I want to put in a plug, the Clark Art Institute in Williamstown, Massachusetts, is presenting a really important exhibition this summer. It opens June 4, closes September 4. It's about Alma Tadema's commission by one of the richest men in New York to create a music room what they called a a Greco-Pompeian music room. Go figure. It was on Madison Avenue in the 60s. It was uh, commissioned in the 1880s. The man was Henry Marquand. He was the co-founder of the Metropolitan Museum. He was one of the Standard Oil rich um, founders. And he um, loved Alma Tadema's work and said to Tadema, who, by the way, never came to America. He did all the work in London. 
He said, would you design me a music room? I know that you love music. And so indeed, the piano at the Clark, which you may recall from the Bouguereau room, that was designed by Tanama yeah, at yeah, great expense, $50,000 in the 1880s. Which would be? Oh, like off the charts. I mean, millions, wow. millions. So this was a luxury project, and Tatama supervised it. He commissioned his friend Layton to decorate the ceilings, um, and he himself provided paintings, which are now scattered around the world. Yeah. So this show is going to be presented this summer at the same time as our show in London. So you, we're partnering with the Clark. Do you know how many pieces are going to be there at the Clark? I don't, but there's a whole uh, webpage on the ClarkArt.edu website. Is it's there, all there any, um, I, I know it's not scheduled, but why isn't this show in the United States? <laughs> is really, like, yeah. I want to see this, and yes, I can jump on a plane and go see it, but like, yeah. why isn't it here? Well, to be very frank with you, um, I myself am a bit despondent about the situation of American art museums today. I think that they've gotten themselves into a bit of a pickle where they are so eager to get big box office numbers yeah. because they have huge operating costs that they are very leery of taking on a project that is expensive and not a brand name artist. Alma Tatama, although we love him, is not a familiar household name in the United States. Yeah. And therefore, a museum director and his development officer, or her development officer, would say, you know what? This is a big ticket number. I don't think we can deliver the audience that we need to make it pay. Now, to be fair, we did not approach any museums in the U.S. because we wanted to keep this project in Europe for logistical reasons. We sure. wanted everything to travel by truck. And that can't be done, obviously, when you're coming right. over to North America. I, I want to point one thing out. The Waterhouse show that I did 10 years ago, almost, um, with Liz Pretjohn and other people, that did come to Montreal in Canada yeah. after its presentations yeah. in Europe. But that was a different era, and Montreal is a very special museum, which is very Europhile right. and willing to take chances. And by the way, they did very well with that show, yeah. so it's not like they suffered. But we felt that we just couldn't waste our time going to American museums and being turned down left and right. I want to point out that the Clark show that I just praised is their own collection. Right? Uh, I mean, they own right. the piano, yeah. Yeah. and they've worked on this show for 10 years. So they're fantastic. Ten years? Ten years of research. Why? Oh, of research. Every detail has been researched, okay. including, by sense. the way, they've hired artisans to recreate the uh, fabrics. Like, literally, handmade. The, the fabrics that decorated the room are more or less lost now. So they've gone and done research on what exactly they were. So you can imagine that ten years would go by pretty quickly <laughs> if you're weaving an entire yeah, room. You know? Absolutely. So, anyway, I, I say that with affection because I think I can't wait to see their show. The lack of appetite for this kind of art in U.S. institutions is, is appalling. I mean, I think besides maybe Sargent, yeah. who it somehow is uh, – I mean – his shows seem to do very well, and, yes, and he, there's an interest in it. But I think besides him, none of the Europeans really get, and you know, most of the Americans don't either from that. You know. I, I mean, I, I know he's not a big household name, but you know, you're talking about Waterhouse, too, and I just think that would do well. It, well, it, also, it, isn't that part of what museums are it, responsible for? Thank you. Yeah. You're right. Yes. See, here's the kicker. I, I'm going to get a little political here for a minute. Please. But, <laughs> you know, More the, the better. <laughs> that we're living in a branded era, that brand names like Monet or O'Keeffe sell tickets. And there's nothing wrong with Monet or O'Keeffe. But 
if I see one more show about Monet or O'Keefe, some <laughs> new angle, like I know they're geniuses, they deserve full respect, let's learn something new, thank you. Yeah. And we're not willing to do that because we're so tied in now to the desire for popularity and profit, or even just breaking even. And I feel that museums have a deeper obligation to the public, that yeah. they are tax exempt for a reason. They're educational institutions first, yeah. entertainment centers second. And they have now gotten themselves into a corner where they are operating such huge facilities that they can't take a risk on something purely educational. Now, here's the real kicker. We all know that if you put Alma Tadema on, let it roll, the public would come out they in droves. Out. They would totally come because they would tell their friends. That's the only way that you really get people but excited. But it would be something different, too. And people would be like, oh, did you got to see that. It would be right. really cool. That's what happened in Holland that nobody imagined it would be such a hit because they thought, well, it'll be appreciated, but no more than that. People went home and told their friends, and they came back three or four times. Yeah, That's the way it works. Yeah. If you see something wonderful, you want to share it. It's like a movie, right? It's always sure. about word of mouth. Yeah, You can market the hell out of something, but actually it's about what people think on your uh, your baseball team or yeah. in your office or at your school. Like they, they tell you hits all the time. All that, the time. That just make more money that are a little bit more more low budget yeah. that make a ton of money because it's not a super I mean but also, I don't know I mean, the, forget but, about the money motive like it's they're nonprofits they don't right. like they are thinking about money but that's not when they talk about the metropolitan's finances they don't even talk about ticket sales which are through the roof anyway no matter right. what they do right they talk about donors exactly and so it, it's it's almost irrelevant whether it's a blockbuster show in terms of making money right it's a blockbuster show if if people love it and if people go back to see it multiple times and uh but i i do think that it's it's it there's something deeper there too i mean the that ross king book uh, yes. the judgment of paris Jesus. i think captures it beautifully that totally. like and I, I think it's it's kind of a, a common uh, uh, issue that we, we're always discussing, yeah. trying to speculate on why that happened. Do you have any thoughts? It's complicated, of course. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it is. It's, it's <laughs> about history. It's about uh, fashion. It's about money. And it's also, you know, as a historian, I'm interested in the idea of the world wars and how things got so screwed up in terms of violence and the um, the dismay, as, as one can understand, of, you know, the old world, the world of tradition has failed us, that things went so terribly wrong. And by the way, in Europe, it's even more complicated because we all know that Hitler and Mussolini endorsed traditional, traditional classical <laughs> arts. Right. Well, the minute the war is over, you have to get rid yeah. of that stuff, right? So all of a sudden, that gets even more But it more was charged. going out of fashion way before the 40s and 30s. It certainly was. And they brought it back into an official status, which was resented by they, many people. They, which they, hurt it, yeah. 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 So, so there, there's all of that yeah. kind of caught up in the mix. I feel that in a way, we live in a society now which is so proud of its being open-minded and anything goes and the internet makes everything possible and isn't it wonderful that we can celebrate all arts? Isn't it great that Alma Tadema can Except sell? one. Well, yeah. <laughs> that, that within certain contexts like these official institutions that we're describing, this stuff that we love is untouchable. Yeah. It has remained taboo. And I find that very peculiar, that you can have great affection among the public, and yet the official institutions have gatekeepers who say, no, right. this cannot come here. And great openness, like anything goes, that, right. what you were describing. Right. Isn't that weird? It seems like a contradiction. It seems to be it just very... It is contradictory. <laughs> it is. 
It is. And but so then why? There's no question. What? I mean, how, how do you think those gatekeepers justify that in their minds? How are they... There's a certain What's kind of monkey see, monkey do aspect to this. I must say that a lot of the people we're talking about are trained at the same graduate schools, and they think that to be cool and to remain with high currency in their field, they have to do what other people do. And so it's a lot of watching and cross-referencing. And, you know, after all, they are picking up and moving to other jobs elsewhere in the country at a certain point. So there's a, a sense of... Creating um, their network. Network that be has to be cool in some way predictable or but in some way... I mean, Okay, so that's true, yes. But here in New York, the cultural institutions want to be leaders. And if you go, I'll tell you, I mean, I won't mention any names, but uh, there was a curator of a, of a more provincial museum that was starting to get a little bit more traffic. And it was a lot of great 19th century paintings there. And as they got more traffic, they got new curators in, and they got more money and more donors. And with all of that came this idea that, well, now we have to pivot, and we have to be relevant in the contemporary sphere. And so, so this, even though it was working, know, yeah. <laughs> it was working, and it was, and it was, it was the thing that was drawing people in that yeah. they didn't realize. They just thought, oh, well, people are suddenly awakening to the arts. Let's give them real art because in <laughs> New York, yeah. they're doing all this. I mean. The Metropolitan is desperately chasing MoMA and yeah. Whitney, and they're nobody all... gets that. Yeah, it's bizarre. That, and nobody I mean, wants well, to nobody own thoughtful space. gets that. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. So in that regard, I'm sad and and dismayed that this situation endures, and I don't know what's going to make it change. To be very honest, I'm starting to get a little despondent because I feel that you know money is not a problem in that sector anymore thank goodness the recession is over mm -hmm. thank goodness that the one percent who are doing so well in our society are very engaged with the high arts you know that yeah. they're not unstinting um, seem to be a lot of philanthropy too exactly so all of that seems to be encouraging but then you have this continuing bottleneck and i think that if you don't just go and create your own museum, like the Dahesh Museum of Art, which right. I used to direct, which is coming back next year, and that will be lovely, but it's, it's a townhouse. Where is it going to be? So much. In the East 60s, between Third and Lex, and it's going to be a lovely double-wide townhouse with the collection. Why not and bring so, Alma Tadema there? Well, I mean, <laughs> they have loaned very generously to my show, and I'm very grateful for yeah. that. We have two pictures from them. They would normally have said, yes, let's do it, if yeah. we had been in the Madison Avenue building, but right. of course that's long gone. Um, I feel that the house that they're taking on will not be capable of presenting such huge shows. Right. That, that wouldn't be the answer. Our show would have to go to Brooklyn right. or to the Met. It's big. Right. It's really big. And yeah. it needs a lot of flexible space. And yeah. that's not what the townhouse will offer. Right. But it's going to be fine. you know. But, but I feel that isn't it madness that you have a success story like what you were describing and then you turn away from it? That's yeah. just illogical. But they all do it. I mean, it's, it's, a, like, it's something we've seen a million times. Yeah. Because they wanna, they wanna be relevant. They wanna, they all of a sudden they see a, a chance to be, you know. Well, it, God, without it getting too political as well, but you know, you mentioned the brand name and all that, and I know that's kind of the way our society is really structured itself now. Yeah. But at the same time, when you have the brand name, and people are sick of it, yet 
the brand name could become, you know, in some of the highest offices. Uh, yes, <laughs> in the world. exactly. The, How about that? Uh, you know, but then they complain. <laughs> Wait, what? And, I don't. I don't understand, <laughs> Tony. And I'm they confused. throw their arms up in the air and and yell. And, and in every situation, yell and and it, well, then fix it. Fix it. You know, and this is something yeah. that is might not be the the big fix, but it it influences other things in the sense of structuring our society to care about things that are a little bit more even something as like beauty which is important to all of us but somebody might not think that's important but like something like that does affect you know down that domino effect of of you know having things be you know not so complaining <laughs> without getting into it. <laughs> but, but at the heart of all this is education. Let's yes, face it. That, that absolutely. This is the big nut in all societies. How do you train the next generation to be open-minded, to think outside the box? And what I've seen over my not, well, middle-aged life, I'm 51, is this diminution of opportunities for young people, except at the very best, most expensive schools, to to really think creatively that that there's a kind of, um, I won't say dumbing down, because there is a lot of excellent teaching across the country, but um, this notion of teach to the test eliminates the possibility of people being open-minded and, and imagining for themselves. They have to kind of follow the dictum because the test scores require that. And in Europe, not that it's perfect, please understand, it's a little easier for them because so often the physical environment is loaded with history that makes young people ask mommy daddy why does that building look like that and how old well is that building made beautiful things around them. right it is not nirvana europe has yes. plenty of problems sure. that america does not suffer from i'm not suggesting that it's an idyll but i would say that they have that artistically going for them and that's why we found it easier to place this show um, in Europe. Um, going down the road, I would say that the diminution of the National Endowment for the Arts and the National Endowment for the Humanities, which is very much on the table right now in yeah. Washington, is going to be a huge disadvantage for people that I'm describing. That that those monies generally, despite the popular imagination, go to on-the-ground services in the countryside yeah. that need every penny they can get. Well, the elite in the cities are going to be just fine without the NEA. Maybe not. I mean, one of the... I, I don't know if you read the op-ed that uh, Campbell wrote uh, yes, yes, I did. Yes. That, uh, yeah. And I didn't realize this, and I think this is incredibly important. They're I bringing a I Michelangelo show yeah. to the Metropolitan. Yeah. And uh, part of the reason they're able to do that, the insur- imagine insuring Michelangelo works. So uh, right. you, you can almost not do it, but yeah. they're doing it. Yeah. The reason they're doing it is because the federal government is acting as a backstop yeah. for the insurance through the NEA. Yeah. Now, without the NEA, they cannot bring they a Michelangelo show to the Metropolitan. So if the NEA goes away, even the Metropolitan, this like powerhouse of an institution, yeah. cannot afford to bring some of the best shows. I mean, a Michelangelo show, I don't know who wouldn't be excited about that. And in America, I mean, in the U.S. Western is civilization insane. would go see that. <laughs> exactly right. But they're trying to, I mean, that would go away. They cannot afford the insurance without the NEA as a backstop. I I should have been more specific in my comment, to be fair. 
that indemnification program that you're talking about, mm-hmm. my prediction is that it will survive, that mm-hmm. Congress will defend it because the trustees of America's museums are very influential people, <laughs> and they'll probably say, no, don't touch that, because all that is is a guarantee reserve, as you yeah. know, that yeah. basically very few dollars have ever been spent out of that fund right. because the museums behave so Although well. Although if, if the funds do get spent, it's going to be a lot. <laughs> oh, yes. The Michelangelo show will bankrupt the country. But <laughs> that program will probably survive. It's you the grant-making hope. program. <laughs> yeah, exactly. An infinite amount of dollars. That could be really big. Um, the grant-making program, which is $5,000 here and $10,000 there, yeah. would go away. Yeah. Uh, and the Met, of course, gets some of those grants, too. Um, they can certainly survive without that money. Although, as Tom pointed out in his editorial, which I thought was excellent, those grants are a signal, uh, a seal, of, of good housekeeping approval. That, that basically, it's, it's, it sends a message to the private donor community that the project is worth doing because the federal government has put in five or $10,000 right. of support. Right. Um, so all of that is tied in together, definitely. And I think, more importantly, it says to me that if we lose those arts agencies, there is this horrifying apathy in our general mainstream culture, that people don't care enough about these finer things, about these educational benefits to speak up for them. I mean, I'm writing letters every other day to legislators and Mm -hmm. other people who might be able to help um, trying to say, look, you've got to save these because it isn't the cash, it's the idea. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've got to protect those agencies. So, um, Amen, brother. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Here. But you're not stopping and saying, well, I'm going to throw up my hands and there's nothing I can do about it. You are doing something. You're part of something that's coming up in uh, December. November. November. In Miami. It's called the Figurative Art Convention and Expo. Right. Thank you. And that's going to be down in – oh, I just saw that. (laughs) What is that? Tell us a little bit about about Face. And how it started and where it comes Who is not a member of the A-team. Uh-oh. <laughs> this could get hairy. Hey, fool. <laughs> I pity the fool. I pity the fool. I pity the fool that don't go down to Miami. <laughs> See you on the airplane. For you, 80s. Cocktails are on me. <laughs> well, it's, it's November 8th through 11. It's in Coral Gables at the beautiful Biltmore Hotel, which is a 1920s paradise, um, just on the edge of Miami. And it is basically... Uh, Streamline Publishing, which produces Fine Art Connoisseur, which I edit, and also Plein Air Magazine, which Steve Doherty edits. Um, that Streamline is very good at organizing conferences, and Eric Rhodes, our publisher, and I have felt for many years that there should be a place where folks who believe in the kind of art that we're talking about today can gather. Um, the truth is that um, that mission has been beautifully fulfilled by a program called TRAC, T-R-A-C, which was operated at California Lutheran University for three years. Did, and did you go to It was to a those? series of conferences. Yeah. I never went right. to I never any went. of them. I okay. was aware of them. Right. So they were, there were three of them. Uh, I don't recall the years. I went in 2014 uh, to speak, and it was wonderful. And Michael Pierce, in particular, uh, the professor at CLU, um, was doing a great job. That initiative has now ended at mm-hmm. CLU, and Michael has agreed to come in with us and to run a version of track parallel to this face event that we're describing. So you're partnering. So, oh, it's almost like a partnering. It's like uh, a partnering. Exactly. Face track. Face track. Exactly. Um, specifically, face is going to be very much oriented toward people who are uh, either beginning or relatively skilled coming in to learn more about painting the figure. Um, so, for example, like there will workshops? be workshops. 
Well, right. There are demos. Okay. Basically, there's a main Got stage. It. And by the way, we've done this kind of format before with something called PACE, P-A-C-E, which is for plein air painting. So we have done five years, if I'm not mistaken, of that conference, which moves around the country. So Streamline has expertise in this area. Now, the demos are being offered by, in alphabetical order, Juliet Aristides, Stephen Assale, John Coleman, Jacob Collins... Max Ginsburg, Daniel Graves, David LaFell, Jeremy Lipking, and Sherry McGraw. Almost all guests on this here. <laughs> suggested donations. Suggested you heard them awesome. first on Suggested on here. I love it. Bravo. Those are our people. And, and we, a few that we're going to have to get. That's right. Exactly. Make a note. <laughs> and we also have pre-workshops, which are basically more intensive, kind of before the conference begins. Graydon Parrish, uh, Jordan Sokol, and... Um, Cesar Santos. So that is very much hands-on. That would be a situation where people are taking notes in the main stage Mm -hmm. room, uh, watching, you know, the big camera screen thing, Mm -hmm. and then going into a studio and making their own work under the observation of mentors. But the track piece of it, which will occur in the same hotel complex, will be panel discussions, lectures, um, even a film screening which touch upon a lot of the topics that we've just been discussing today. The, the more meta issue, not so much the making, but the whole idea of where does all this fit in. And it will mainly be addressing contemporary figurative art, as opposed to historical, like Alma Tadema. We're not going to have a lot of past art mm-hmm. under review. And that will involve professors and museum directors, curators, um, hopefully a few artists prominent sla- artists. Artists slash <laughs> podcasters. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. Hey. Um, slash professors. Slash professors. Yes, yes, right. yes. Slash you know, demo everything. Bring it on. I mean, this could be really fun and very it sounds productive. Like a lot of fun. Slash yeah. roofers if you need it. <laughs> film. I love it. So margarita talented. maker. My margarita game is amazing. Beautiful. But I mean, Miami is a lot of fun in November. It's lovely weather. It's a great campus to be on. Basically, people can go outdoors and paint, you know, or go into the studio and paint. Um, and I think also the networking is a very important part of it. The, the track, I enjoyed it so much because there were all these people that I had read about or heard about but never actually met because mm-hmm. there's nothing like a conference to bring you together right it, it's just it's about being human you yeah. can facebook all you want but sometimes you just have to be in the same room with people sure, and catch face lunch to face. together face so, well and i recommend face. taking tony up on his margaritas during lunch it's amazing <laughs> there it is do you feel like these conventions and um kind of get-togethers are um necessary to kind of try to change a little bit of what we talked about earlier yeah yeah, I think so. I, for me, that we're all doing our thing, and it's great that we're in touch through Facebook and so on, but sometimes you just have to gather and brainstorm about ways to solve these problems. I'm not really in favor of some new organization or association that goes and marches in the streets because I'm not sure that works anymore. I, think, it works. You know, I think it's more about activating change locally where we can and track, for example, gave me a lot of ideas that I had never thought of because I was there in the room with these people listening and learning and talking and gabbing over drinks. Mm-hmm. And why not do it again? Um, and so Eric Rhodes is very much in favor of this because if you have the making going on over there and you've got the talking going on and these people kind of go back and forth, then even more creativity starts to flow. Yeah. Um, and three days is just about the right duration. Yeah, you, you know, we to want be to be long. focused. We don't want this to be forever. This oh is God, not graduate I'd be school. So sick of Tony after three days. <laughs> no, that's not true. <laughs> Trapped on the same campus. <laughs> <laughs> we roommate. I'm just like, hey Ted, what are you doing, Ted? Exactly. Are you trying to sleep? I Why wake up in the middle of the night and he's just, just pulled his chair right next to my bed. He's hey Ted, staring. I was waiting for you to wake up. <laughs> oh, are you awake? Are you awake? Oh, hello. hello. You want to go like hang out? 
let's talk. Well, do you do you think um, when you get a lot of people together like this that we're just going to be talking to the converted and we're all going to be like, yay, yay, yay? Like, where? What comes out of it? Like, where? I mean, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm predicting action I don't know items. Them. Yeah, but yeah. it's like. How, then how do we implement it yeah. to like the world? No, you're quite right. I mean, this has certainly been discussed at many events that I've attended over the last five to eight years. Um, you know, my feeling is personally that at the end of the day, when you're dealing with art, you've got to mount an exhibition of the best work. Absolutely. You need people in the room to see how good you guys are. I'm just an observer. You were the ones making great art, and I want to help celebrate that. What I've said a thousand times is that we need to find a venue, probably in New York and possibly also in Los Angeles, you know, one and then two, sure. where we rent out the hall or get a museum on board and we put the very finest examples of contemporary realism on view and let people come in, not necessarily for free, but certainly not for a high ticket price. We want to eliminate as many barriers as possible sure. and we want them to see just how good you are. And I think the public, to be fair to the public, is convinced when they are blown away. That, yeah. that they, they, they do read the critics and they stay away from things that they're warned against. But if you can get them in the room, they cannot deny, deny. the skill and the vision and the magic. That's been this our is experience. something we talk I mean, about yeah. so much, exactly that is totally. that if, it's like if you build it, they'll come type of thing. But the idea that if you do just put the best examples. Yeah. People will see it, and and I want to, and I don't think the public is dumb. I have far no. too much respect for no. the public, and I do think that even though you there might be things that you're like, I don't get this. This is really stupid. The majority of people, I think, would just it's obvious. That's it. I totally agree with that. And so I would like to make that possible for them. The conference that we're talking about obviously is not for the general public because there's a registration fee and it's limited attendance. You know, we're hoping for 300 people. But, but it seems to me that if we can get energy coming out of that meeting and if then a few conversations can occur such that such an exhibition happens or maybe there's some new pumping up of existing programs like the Art Renewal Center or one of the great academies that we all know and love gets another layer of programming on board you know things can well, happen support support and a lot of it becomes yes. financial support absolutely that's just the way things run i'm afraid it is and we were talking about the museums and how put upon they sure. are financially and it's absolutely the same in this case so would it benefit or would it be possible to get i mean how do you even phrase it people who might not necessarily get it but they would be incredibly influential people in that part like not the art part of it but almost like the business part of yeah. how to move forward with well, I think it's writers and, and people who are able to speak eloquently and, and yeah. to defend the ideas and the ideals of the artwork but almost inviting it. people who are influential to say come see this thing that's it Exactly. So I feel that th this is a multi-layered approach. Obviously, the conference itself, uh, we are certainly going to comp a few people that we would sure. really like to be present. Sure. You know, that they would either speak or they would observe and they would write about it and so on. Uh, that is one solution. Coming to your broader point about how do you activate a community of like-minded people. I mean, I think that can be done virtually. I think that there's a way to yeah. um, have people in sync um, not necessarily on a secret private Facebook page, but you know something that is more about human to human, um, because I think that we've got to make this um, matter on a rolling basis. It can't just be event to event. 
um, the exhibition that I'm describing would be an event, of course, uh, but you would make it for a long enough period of time that people would be able to come see it yeah. and not have to just see it in one weekend, for example. Yeah, I mean, if like you're out of town that weekend, then it's just pointless. It has right. to be up for a while. Exactly. Yeah. And the idea of that you would have the, in this case, the convention, but it wouldn't end with the convention, that there would be things happening after it, after it that would almost lead to the next year. So yeah. is that what you meant by That's, the rolling out where it's not absolutely. like, okay, in convention, we're all super excited. And then as right. soon as it's over, like back to totally. That's exactly what we would hope for. We don't want to lead the question right now. I think it would be premature of us to say, and by the way, on the final day of the event, we expect to announce X. Right. That's not really very smart. But but I think, yeah, you know, that if indeed these dialogues can be rich enough that we can at least feel optimistic to say, not only are we doing the event, the, the convention, next year at this time in another place. Like, we're happy to move around the country, by the way. It's not like we have to remain in Florida. Uh, but also, we would like to see X results, Y results, between now and then, mm-hmm. you know, let's get moving let's get on to work. these three priorities. Yeah. What are those? Right. Yeah. So it's like phase one. Yeah. And then phase two. Yeah. Absolutely. And the Build. magazine can help promote that. Fine Absolutely. Art Connoisseur well, is going out six times a year. Things right. like the podcast, obviously, you know, yeah. we keep, we keep, yep. you know, keep we're here hammering away. At thank you. Words <laughs> out we love and, it. You know, and thank I'm you, here. by the way, also this, we're, we're recording at the Century Club in a beautiful room surrounded by beautiful Hudson River School paintings uh, in beautiful gold frames. Fantastic room. It's, a, it's an amazing room, amazing space, amazing club. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yes, this is a- I mean, coming up here, because we wanted to come up here and set up really quickly, but the whole time my head was on a swivel. <laughs> I know. We need to do a little, a quick art tour. Uh, we walk right out slowly, <laughs> I promise. <laughs> <laughs> like real slow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, can you... Peter's uh, going to be like, guys, come on, come yeah, on, come on. Let's, 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 let's. <laughs> um, can you just give the dates on that face, the figurative art convention and expo again? Absolutely. Uh, it is running November 8th through 11th. Uh, the pre-convention workshops that I mentioned by Graydon Parrish and Jordan Sokol and Cesar Santos are on the 7th, which is um, the day before. Okay. Um, it's uh, a website that is very easy to remember. It's www.figurativeartconvention.com. Um, and um, the, the face part, the E part, is expo. <laughs> we have a kind of trade hall nice. in the hotel where you can buy supplies and pick up videos and things like that. So that's the so expo So there's going to be supply uh, companies? Yes, exactly. Know. We've already lined up brush makers Great. and canvas and you know all Paint the things yeah. that you need uh, to do what you do. So um, that is the expo <laughs> portion. And it's not really a central feature. We just wanted to have it there as an amenity in case people want to buy sure. directly or get to meet the vendors. Um, for me, the exciting part is working with Michael Pierce on these programs that we're talking about uh, that have to do with conversations because we want those to be as rich and thought-provoking as possible. The demos will be fabulous. Of course, all the artists I just listed are amazing. And I'm they sure there's just... going to be some more possibly people exactly like this, it's not over it's just it's Correct. building up this this is the initial faculty list and okay. also we're going to have a whole roster of the mentors who are in the studio helping people make better art i mean mm-hmm. that that will be announced we decided to wait and put up a whole bunch of those names on the website later and right? then possibly some other guest speakers that might like, yes once to, All of that to be determined be announced type of stuff and right. some of them might be really fun yes um that sounds great and uh, hopefully, I you know hopefully we'll be coming down. We yeah, we'll be it. there and we'll hope and and uh, and recording. Yes, yeah. which is something that, that be... I think would be great. Wow. Not only to with you know one on one with guests, but 
one of the ideas that we had is to actually do like a public one where it's like a, an audience and Panel. having a bunch of people there and really now, you know, having fun and Let being funny, but really trying to get into the nitty gritty yeah. of, of, you know, things that we think about. I think that would be, amazing, would be amazing because it's a good fit. This yeah. is exactly where you're headed and that's where we're trying to head too. So the answer is yes, let's do it. Woohoo! Yeah. Well, Peter, <laughs> thank you, you in so much yeah, for coming out awesome. and taking the time to come and see yeah, us and thank talk. You. And, thank and, you for inviting me. For the great yeah. stories. And, and also, um, one more time, the, uh, the, the Alamatadma show. Yes. It's up in Vienna right now. It's in Vienna till June 18. Then it's opening at the Leighton House Museum in London on July 7. It runs through October 29. Oh, wow. It's a nice long run. Yes, it is. Uh, yes. We're and happy about that. Leighton House. And also Fine Art Connoisseur. Yes, fineartconnoisseur.com is the magazine. Um, and we have um, six issues a year. I'm working on the next one now. I love it. I've been in the job since 2006, and I'm learning something every day. It's, it's the greatest job. Yeah. I love it. Excellent. Well, awesome. Peter, thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you. Excellent. See, see ya, everybody. <laughs> Perfect. Wow, you guys are good.